Jennifer uh, is here. Jennifer is um, University of Virginia Media Studies um, and currently is at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. We've got some uh, brochures from CASBIS in the back. Um, we have really enjoyed the, a wide range of great um, academics and a broad range of social sciences that uh, from CASBIS have spoken for us over the years. And uh, tonight is another great uh, addition to that series. So uh, definitely uh, take a look and, and find out more about CASBIS because they have their own speaking series and, and I highly recommend that. Um, you may have noticed as you came in, we have a single copy of Jennifer's book. <laughs> so it's a collector's edition. Yes. <laughs> Price She's is just gonna, gonna get higher it. all She's night. Gonna date it. <laughs> Earthquake Day 2017. So. Um, and uh, it's also available on Kindle, I'm led to believe. So just, just so you know, uh, on that front. Um, and I just want to say a quick thanks. I think she'll mention in her talk as well. Uh, we want to say thank you to Rick Prelinger and the Prelinger Archives, who helped to source a couple of the films that you saw. I hope you enjoyed the silent film show at the start. Um, now, without any further ado, please give a big round of applause, and we'll bring Jennifer to the stage. Thank you. Conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Thank you guys, and thanks to everyone for coming out tonight. I'm gonna tonight give you a bit of a media history of free speech. And hopefully, and the focus is gonna be on the early 20th century, but hopefully this will be a useful or at least entertaining context for thinking about some of the big questions that we're facing today with new technologies like, um, you know, computer programs and outputs of algorithms and whether or not these things can be considered speech. So in the United States, any history of free speech begins in 1789 um, with the First Amendment of the Constitution, and um, which we've got in two formats up here. Um, so in this little phrase, you know, Congress shall make no law uh, abridging the freedom of speech or the press, is, seems simple enough, but it's highly contentious. Um, but most broadly we can say, or this is how we've interpreted it, is to say that the government can't make any laws restricting the sharing or publication of ideas. We can make all kinds of laws restricting um, what we can do, our actions or our conduct, our behavior, but not what we say. So for example, government can make laws saying, you know, you have to stop at a stoplight. That's something we consider reasonable. But they can't say, you can't critique the stoplight or the police officer or the law. Okay. So this is what it's come to mean. Um, so what I'm, as a media historian, I'm more interested here in the understanding of what is expressive than the history of the freedoms. So I'm interested in what objects, texts, and even actions lawyers and justices have come to see as expressive and why. Um, now, this question was pretty easy 
for those who wrote this in 1789. The primary vehicles for publication were the human voice and the printing press, so the objects covered by it were pretty straightforward too. Um, but since this, and especially in the 20th century, things have gotten more complicated, and the question of what counts as speech has become a really interesting one. Um, and my basic argument is that the way that justices have answered this question has a lot to do with their experience with communication and communications media, as well as the whatever ideas are circulating about communication at the time. So what I'm going to do today is tell a little bit of an intellectual history of free speech. And for any lawyers in the room, it'll be a strange history of free speech. Um, I'm going to talk to tell you back to a moment when um, when something we probably all think of as expressive, film, was considered not to be speech for the law. And I'm going to flesh out why and explain what ideas of communication made this made sense, and then talk about how and when this changed, which was in the 1940s. And here we move from cases dealing with film to ones dealing with flag salutes. And then end with a few questions about what parallels there might be, if any, between these issues and uh, those we're facing today. So, here we go. In uh, 1915, the Supreme Court decided that movies were not part of the freedom of speech or the press. And before, before I go any further, I need to tell you a couple of things. So first off, in 1915, freedom of speech uh, was not the same as today. It was not as free as today. So there just wasn't that much in the way of free speech legal cases. And when um, these cases were heard, the courts weren't all that generous or all that friendly. So for example, during World War I, the Supreme Court said it was perfectly fine to throw dissidents in jail. This was not a violation of the First Amendment. So we're talking about a really different legal environment, um, one where um, freedom of speech is not the same as it is today. And the second thing is that films were not the same as they are today. So Hollywood was not yet an industry. Really, films were still in formation. Um, there were many different types of um, motion pictures, as they were called at the time, uh, that were considered, that were lumped together. And the very earliest films or motion pictures or moving images, like this is where movies come from, there's a lot of emphasis on the ability of them to capture human and mechanical movement. The earliest of these were called actualities. And they showed, they were silent, and they were often only a few minutes long, and they often showed images of everyday life. So again, the, the focus is on the ability of the technology to capture and reproduce this. Um, you would see street scenes, scenes of factories, um, trains, subways, things like this. Or sometimes things that we might think of as current events, like, for example, the earthquake film that you saw that was taken about 110 years ago, today or tomorrow, um, that was you know, chronicling what happened after the earthquake in San Francisco. By the teens, uh, filmmakers were experimenting with story films. They used editing, acting, and you notice this acting is very melodramatic. It uses a lot of gesture to tell the story. And intertitles as well to tell a story. These were still pretty short, generally less than 30 minutes long. And some of these were really kind of pure fun. They were the types of, um, you know, uh, comedies, you know, Charlie Chaplin films. This is the very beginning of Charlie Chaplin's career. Others were attempting to educate or instill a moral lesson. So, for example, here we're seeing, uh, in the spirit of the flag, a film about patriotism. And um, 
you know, the need to sacrifice for one's nation, and we're seeing, you know, write a, a story about uh, um, uh, how to be a good man, how, you know, this is a nice white kind of colonial guy is defending the native Filipina's honor from this cad. So we've got this kind of like moral lesson going on. There were also films, um, there were a number of films, <laughs> yeah, and patronizing, yes. Yeah. So you would also have temperance films, films trying to, you know, teach young immigrant girls about the, you know, evils of prostitution and such things. These films were quite popular. There are reports that 26 million people were going to go see films every, um, every week. And this was about, this is a third of the population, or almost a third of the population at the time. So this is an incredibly popular pastime. And a number of the people who are going to go see these films are children and immigrants, or at least that's what people talked about and thought. And for politicians and activists of the day, Children and immigrants are two particularly vulnerable populations or groups of people that need to be protected from things like potentially films that might have immoral influences. And one of the ways that reformers and politicians try to do this is through censoring films, deciding what films are good, only letting the films that might be good and useful uh, through to these audiences. And in 1911, uh, three states, following six suggestions, start um, establish laws that establish censor boards. The three states are Pennsylvania, Kansas, and Ohio. Many more states would follow, but these are the first three. And so these laws said that any, every film had to be pre-screened by a censor board before it could be shown within that state. And so these censor boards would be generally citizens who would watch every movie and decide, this one can be shown, this one can't. If it could be shown, it got a seal of approval. This would be at the beginning or at the end of the film. And if you were watching a film and it didn't have this, that was an illegal and illicit film. Right? So, um, this, and for film distributors, this was not a popular thing. Like, this really mucked up the business. You can't uh, ship off the same films to Ohio as you can to Tennessee. Right, these sensor boards really, and then you have to wait for them to be screened, and there's all kinds of things that just get in the way. And so in 1913, one of these distributors, um, Mutual Films, sues the state of Ohio and says, this sensor board you've got here is a violation of free speech. And now, to be clear, right, they're not really necessarily thinking about anybody's civil liberties here. They're thinking about their business interests and making this claim in this way. So this is a, a venerable tradition, goes back at least to 1913. Um, and so they, they say this is, a, this is a violation of freedom of speech, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in a unanimous decision in 1915, the court said, well, no, movies are not speech. They're not protected by the First Amendment or by freedom of speech law. And the reasons that they gave weren't the ones that we might suspect. They didn't say that uh, films weren't protected under freedom of speech because they were mere entertainment or because they weren't really political or because you know, they didn't give us anything useful. And actually, they explicitly acknowledged all these things. They said, yeah, films are educational, they're useful, and indeed they convey ideas, they're mediums of thought. But still, they're not speech. 
The reason was the type of communication. They conveyed ideas, but they conveyed them the way that did, the, that did circuses, theater, and other shows and spectacles, all things that we would want to regulate. So what they had to say about this mode of communication was um, several different things. First off, they had to say it was crass commercialism. Second, that they were mere representations of events. Right? They were either adaptations of books or it was just capturing events like the aftermath of the earthquake and reproducing them on the screen. Didn't add, publicize anything or add anything new to the conversation. Or that they were a really different type of communication. They were closer to physical action or conduct than to um, speech or the conveyance of ideas. Now, this last one probably seems pretty strange to most of us in this room. And so I want to turn to another similar case or related case where the justices flesh this out, what they mean by this. They say some similar things and flesh it out. And in this case, seven years later, um, it's closely related, but what we have here is actually a newsreel. So New York State censors censored a newsreel that had an image of a woman in a bathing suit. This is not the woman, this is not the, from the film, but this is what the bathing suit would look like. It's obviously very scandalous. Um, <laughs> and the distributor said, well, wait a minute, this is the news. You shouldn't be pre-screening and censoring newsreels. This is a clear violation of freedom of the press. And they took this to the court. And this one didn't go to the Supreme Court, just to the New York State courts. The New York State Appellate Court disagreed. They said, no, this is not a violation of freedom of the press. It's not, as we might think in this room, right, the news that's privileged by freedom of the press or of speech. But um, it's not the ideas, not the con or not the content of the information conveyed, but the manner that it's conveyed. They said, this speech or this freedom doesn't uh, cover everything. It doesn't cover just news. It covers expression of thought involving conscious mental effort, not mere action. Okay, so the suggestion is these films are mere action. In contrast to this type of mental activity, like the formation of judgment, opinions, etc., the judges said current events films and other films might convey ideas, but they did so differently than newspapers. In film, for the audience, no mental activity is required. All the audience is doing is absorbing ideas, or ideas are being implanted in them. The judge said, there's not a speaker. In film, there is no uh, speaker, merely an actor or a body performing ideas. And for the audience, the physical experience of spectacle. And um, spectacle, right, at turn of, the, turn of the century, doesn't merely mean something that you look at, but it means something you've experienced in kind of a visceral, physical way. So films might be spectacles, but so are roller coasters. And I don't mean looking at them, going on the roller coaster. So this is a type of experience they're talking about. So in summary, you know, films aren't speech because they're imitative, because they use images and gestures to convey ideas rather than words, and because they worked on the bodies rather than the minds of the audiences. And this, again, seems strange to us. But at the time, it made total sense. It fit perfectly within the way that academics, specifically social um, psychologists, sociologists, um, were talking about communication in the early 20th century, and many politicians, too, building upon this work. 
So these academics and politicians in early 20th century talked about there being two distinct modes of communication. And these distinct modes of communication mapped to different classes of people. The first was the irrational communication of crowds. And the second is the kind of reasoned deliberation of public opinion. And that was something that was done by the middle and upper classes. So, and when they talk about, the way the justices are talking about film echoes and borrows a lot from the way that academics and politicians are talking about crowds. These people thought that crowds communicated without mental activity or without reflection, um, through imitation and um, through suggestion, which isn't fully rational. And people in crowds responded to simple ideas and emotions they saw around them. So, and crowds needed a leader. This leader might be a speaker or an actor, because theaters were hotbeds of crowd activity, um, very disreputable places. And um, so there might be a leader, but, and people are responding to the, the words, but also to the manner in which they're being spoken, the manner in which they're being communicated. They're getting images, or they're getting um, uh, absorbing emotions from looking at the bodily pose or the bodily gestures and the facial expressions of the speaker and those around them. So this is a very emotional form of communication, and it's very imitative. You know, people are looking and seeing the way other people feel and taking that on themselves, almost as a sort of reflex. This is a very different way than we think. Like, there's no psychological processing. It's a very reflexive response. Um, now, this was bad for a couple of reasons. First off, everyone in the crowd is responding to the same thing. They're all looking at and responding and taking on the same feelings. And these are embodied. And so they're all potentially being excited by the same things in the same direction. They all might start to act together, um, become disorderly, disrupt the streets, pick up a, a rock and throw it to your window. Right? And the people who are thinking about this are the people who own the windows. Right? This is an elite fear. Um, crowds were always on the verge of turning into dangerous mobs. And this is what you know, a general strike might look like. Now, the second type of communication uh, that people talked about at the time was the total opposite of this. It was public opinion, which did, you know, people, public opinion encompassed everything that was the opposite of crowd psychology. It was reasoned deliberation, expression of an individual opinion, and dispassionate judgment. And in conversations among, again, academics and politicians, the newspaper was a really important part of this. The newspaper was closely associated with public opinion. It was a way that it, it, the newspaper brought people together in mind, mentally, but not physically. So people are reading the news and connecting through reading the same ideas, thinking about the same things, and then discussing them in small groups. And this, for elites in the early 20th century, this is what democracy looks like. This is democratic communication. It's the good stuff. Yeah. Um, and this is what the justices are thinking about when they're thinking about what speech is on a number of levels. This type of activity, or mental activity, not physical activity, but also probably the types of people involved as well. Okay. Um, so film just doesn't fit this picture. Film is a primitive communication. The fact that it uses images and gestures and excites the bodies of its audiences means that we can't consider it part of what speech is. So, so that's how people are talking and thinking about speech circa 1920. Okay. 
1943, all of this has changed. And the law, the place where this changes is, um, or the moment where it changes, is 1943, where the justices again think about images, gestures, and primitive communication. But at this moment, they come to a really different set of conclusions. They say that images and gestures can speak, and they are part of the speech protected, you know, part of our First Amendment rights because they are primitive. So let me step this out. In, I'll step this out a little bit in a minute. And it happens in a case, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with films, but rather with flag salutes. In the case is West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett, and the policy at issue here is a West Virginia policy that requires every student to salute the flag. And in the late 30s. Um, right in the run-up to the U.S. entry into World War II, a number of states were passing these kinds of laws, forcing children to salute the flag um, in order to instill patriotism, national unity, etc. Jehovah's Witnesses objected. They said the flag is an image, and that we are being forced to break the Second Commandment by worshiping a graven image.、Um, so the Jehovah's Witnesses sued and. There are a number of legal cases. The most consequential one is、uh, West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett. It was an expansive case,、uh, what we would think of today as judicial、um, activism, in which the court said that the flag and the gesture were utterances akin to speech.、Um, by forcing these Jehovah's Witnesses to do the salute, you're forcing them to say something, say something they might not believe in. And that is compelled speech, which is an abridgment of the First Amendment.、Okay. So again, we have images, the flag, and the physical gesture.、Okay. This time, they're being included within the law. Now, it's worth taking time to note that the specific that this West Virginia、um, Board of Education policy required a very specific gesture. The flag salute that was originally written into the law was the Bellamy salute, which was a common salute. In the United States, from the late 19th century to the 30s, that you see here, arm outstretched. Now, by the end of the late 30s,、um, this salute had taken on a different set of meanings and connotations. And it was in this context. You know, most people would have seen these images. They would have seen photographs or newsreels of the Berlin Games, of Nazi rallies. So this would have been one of the things in people's minds when they're thinking about this salute. And with this in mind, this is this, this set of con- kind of uncomfortable connotations helps to highlight the ways in which this gesture was expressive and the different things it, it might speak.、Um, and it also, I want to. It also, you know, if you think about, you know, you're a parent and you're thinking about your child being forced to, you know, engage in this salute. Your child is being forced to kind of act in a way that you associate with the Hitler Youth. This is. Not an you know not an abstract thing. This is a very emotional, deep-seated political kind of response that it might have. The set of feelings that this that this flag salute was evoking, and this emotionality in 1943 was part of was was a good thing in the sense that it was part of what made this expression under the law. It was part of what made it speech. So there's a pretty strong contrast between the way that the justices are reasoning. And thinking about what speech is in 1943, then in 1915,、um, 
and 22. The reasons as to why this is speech really focused on the um, power of symbols, and by symbols here, they mean images and gestures. Their ability to evoke simple ideas and emotions without all the lengthy reason-giving and um, explanation of words. And so some of the very things that had made film seem outside of speech, something that we didn't want to include within this category, now become reasons for including these uh, images and gestures within it. So this is total rewriting and um, expansion of what speech means. So what happened in order to enable this? Um, the quick and dirty, the easiest way to answer this is Americans discovered Freud and the subconscious. <laughs> um, from Freud, we learned that we were all driven by unconscious drives and thoughts. None of us were pure, you know, were masters of our own minds, and that we were, none of us were purely rational. But um, we also learned that um, this irrationality was a product of our minds, not our bodies. So the subconscious, right, is source of irrationality. It's a psychological process. It's something that makes us uniquely human. Whereas in the 20s and 15s, the source of irrationality is the body, and it's something that is shared among humans, primitives, and animals. So um, this is a really different way of thinking about irrationality. And the many different forms of persuasion uh, that were common at the time that people were experiencing, from propaganda um, to ads, which were considered commercial propaganda, um, underscored this point. By the late 20s and 30s, such appeals were understood and critiqued. People uh, began to think of propaganda as a bad thing in the late 20s, where they hadn't before, in terms of manipulation and as a particularly psychological and emotional form of manipulation. And there's a bit of an interesting history here around this World War I poster, if you want to ask about it later. It's a little beside the point now. Um, Okay, so these things, this experience of propaganda and the psychological frameworks taught us that we were all, or taught people that they were all subject to manipulation, and that this manipulation was a mental or psychological process. In this, um, we have a real shift in the way that public opinion uh, is understood. With this way of understanding, um, propaganda, psychology, persuasion, we really see this uh, shift in the way people talk about public opinion. Um, whereas in 1915, public opinion is associated with rationality, deliberation. At this point, you know, nobody's fully rational. Public opinion can't be purely rational. And public opinion increasingly is understood as a mix of rational and irrational um, mental processes. And has talked about public opinion it becomes interchangeable with attitudes, which is a much more psychological term. And along with this, we have a shift in the types of, or the fears uh, associated with communications, the problems that we might have with it. Um, we're no longer worried about the masses and the kind of physical influence or physical disruptions of the masses. By 1943, we're worried about the mass. Okay? and the idea, and also about psychological influence and manipulation and homogenization. 
So this is the public, or the mass, that the justices in um, the Barnett decision are thinking about. Um, everyone is part of this. There's not a big distance between elites and workers here. Everyone's part of the same audience, is subject to the same persuasion, the same psychological manipulation. And this is a public that's already awash in images and actions, communication by image and actions. And so the justices in Barnett decide that images and gestures or actions can speak just at a moment where uh, public opinion is understood to be more emotive and just at a moment where they consider themselves kind of more primitive people as well or in closer proximity to everyone else. There is no longer a big separation between elites and the masses. Everyone's engaging in the same thing. And indeed, at the time, one of the justices in the case bemoans this fact uh, in a dissent. He says, we all live by symbols. This is inescapable. So the justices here understand themselves as well to be susceptible. This is what it is. This is a state of public opinion. If public opinion is emotional, then emotional communication via image and gesture is part and parcel. This is part of our speech. So the law changed because of the communicative experiences of the justices and because of the way people were talking about communication. So what can we learn about this for today? Well, in the early 20th century, legal discussions about what speech is and what it's not centered on what separated civilized human beings from less civilized human beings. And in this case, bodies were central. They kind of marked the, the outer limits of what could be speech. Now, today, they don't. We consider many embodied actions to be expressive, to be part of speech, from uh, silent protests to naked dancing and flag burning. These all might be considered expressive. They're no longer outside speech. Today, rather, it's a different set of things that we think about when we think about the limit cases of speech or what might be the ends of speech. Um, discussions around um, machine actions and automation are often the big question marks. Can these things be considered part of speech, something that's protected or covered by the First Amendment? Today, currently, courts are facing or will face very interesting sets of questions about whether or not human communication to computers or computer communication to humans can be considered speech. Questions like, is computer code, especially code written in machine-readable language, ones and zeros, speech, or is it merely machine action? Okay. One of these is potentially protected in some way, the other one, not. Um, or is it, at this point, it could be a little bit of both. And to use a set of, or to kind of explain this or give the set of legal analogies that have been used, is this more like a blueprint, pure ideas? Or is this code like blueprint and assembly all rolled into one? Similarly, are the outputs of algorithms, which are the products of both human programmers, machine and, and judgments, machine processing, and often a lot of other um, sources of information, things often information supplied by bunches of different users online, especially if we're thinking about recommendation engines. Are these speech? Are they? Yeah. And if so, whose? 
And this is you know, one of the sets of recommendations or you know, um, computer aids I'm always looking, using. Okay? And similarly, um, are, what about Twitter bots or AIs? And I have here a picture of Tay. Do you guys all know? I'm thinking people know the story of Tay. Okay. Um, so are these types of um, automated intelligence or um, artificial intelligences speech? Who's? In the case of Tay, you know, one of the questions we get to is, who's responsible for Tay's, um, if Tay libels somebody, say, who's responsible? Um, so I want to end by, with the question of, um, where are we at? And how should we be answering these questions? And I want to really, hopefully, draw on the wisdom of the room in thinking about this. And also, so these specific questions about uh, human-computer communication, but also a little bit more, in a little bit more of a meta way. What are the limits? How are we answering these questions today? And what, can, what are the considerations that are shaping the way we answer them? And what are the limit cases for how we think and talk about what speech is? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, so as Jennifer said, we'd love for this to turn into more of kind of a discussion within the room. So if you, uh, I'm sure we have a lot of people in technology here. We probably have some folks that are in the law here. We probably uh, have some of you who are just curious or, or, uh, or concerned have for something that you've seen here. So um, we've got uh, two microphones that are going to be, uh, that's Rio and Roseanne, who have the mics, let them know if you've got a question. They'll both be going around the room. I'm going to sneak in the first one here. Mm -hmm. and, and again, this is open if you've got a response to it in the room as well. And, and I should say the folks on the live stream, please chime in as well. We'd love to have you talking too. Um, so one of the most striking things, I think, probably for a lot of folks here, is that pronunciation of representation in those yeah. early days. <laughs> yeah. And it strikes me that in the data model, in a lot of ways, there's a different kind of representation, an algorithmic, mm -hmm. um, you know, iteration of, of vari variations of, of those of, of presentation of facts or of, of not facts <laughs> that are already out there. Um, are, are there thoughts about that, or, or and, and and maybe maybe just say something again about that? representation and does that apply uh, in, in, in something here too? Well, this issue of representation and copies is really, I don't think we're as worried about it anymore and obviously the status of the copy is very different once you get to computers. Mm -hmm. The digital copy and the distance between the digital copy and the original um, is closer, I think, than people than people were thinking about the relationship of the copy and the original in early 20th century. Um, Interestingly, this idea of um, uh, certain forms of mediation being mere copies was um, taken up and used later on, in, not very successfully in the 1930s, in one of the first attempts to um, regulate radio. One of the offenses was, uh, one of, in, a, in a challenge to the FCC about radio regulation, the FCC said, well, radio isn't really speech because it's merely the reproduction of human speech 
at the other end. Mm -hmm. So the voice you're hearing isn't really the voice, it's a mere copy. So they made this argument, and they're probably looking here to this case and to some other cases um, and trying to use this argument, but it didn't fly mm -hmm. um, in the 30s. So I think you know, there's kind of a change in the, the um, worry about copies that it peaks actually probably uh, around the 30s and 40s and then recedes. There's a lot of stuff about music and canned music versus live music, which is part of this. So you've been a good audience. You've been absorbing ideas, <laughs> as, as you should. Yeah. Um, does anyone have thoughts on, on any of the, anything you've heard tonight, really? But, um, and just let them know there. We've got our first uh, question here, please. So, so this last question actually touches on what you were just discussing. So I could imagine interpreting sort of a bot anywhere from its mere reproduction, mm -hmm. the author of the algorithm created it, and it's merely reproduced, like radio, mm -hmm. to the other extreme, which is you could even go back to a movie or a, or a performance and say, well, the author had an intent, but the actor added value. Mm -hmm. So the question is, and if you go back pre-bot, if an actor or a presenter were to present some other producer's work, Who's held accountable for the free speech, the performer or the author? Okay, let me try and um, parse that. And so if we're thinking about where do the ideas or who's speaking in that case, right? right, right. Um, if we're thinking about a performance, at this point, we would probably maybe think that the, author, that the performer is speaking in some way. Not in 1950, probably not in 1960s. This is a really recent way of so thinking about it. So the bot's responsible. <laughs> yeah, well, potentially, which is kind of blows your mind and is problematic in a number of ways. But this is with the, the, the performance, the human performer. And I think there's a number of differences, probably, in, in a question about uh, bots. And, and we were talking earlier before the show that in the silent film days, mm -hmm. The actors weren't recognized, so, so there's there's an aspect. There's there's media here. There's technology, and there's also culture, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. culture, you know, it may be that culture comes to recognize technology. a bot or an AI mm -hmm. as an author, as an yeah. agent, in a way that right now we see it as a machine. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that the actors were not recognized or the directors yes. per se yes. in those early silent movies, right? Because yeah. that was yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, we've got another question over here. We'll start there and Rhea, if you want. Hi. Uh, you talked about the, the transition uh, between uh, crowd and spectacle to then the understanding of uh, propaganda later on. And I was just thinking of uh, the earlier films, like, I mean, like Birth of a Nation, uh, for example. And that film seemed to, to understand its nature as propaganda. So I'm wondering if there was a disparity between the way they filmmakers thought of what they were doing and then the way it was perceived? That is a great question. I'm so glad you asked that question, actually. Can I flip to my, uh, can yeah. you figure I out how to switch? Yeah, I think, it's, uh, I think it's right next, right? So, um, yeah, probably there is a disparity. And in fact, yeah, um, uh, Griffith writes a treatise about this, like, this is my speech. How can you uh, trample on it? Th these are ideas. Um, so yeah, there's a disparity between the, just, the way the justices are thinking about uh, film and the way at least some of the film producers are thinking about it. But probably film producers are thinking a lot of different ways about film. Um, I, think, I think we lost that slide. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it doesn't seem so I had here um, a poster advertising Birth of a Nation in 1915. 
and it's advertised as the world's biggest spectacle. That it has something about how many thousands of people were used to make the film. But also the film was clearly understood to be political. It instigated riots. You know, some people argue that this was formative in the, the creation of the ACLU. Um, and we know that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court went and watched Birth of a Nation, I think two weeks before releasing uh, this opinion. So, and he watched it at the press club, not at a theater, so it would have been a slightly different uh, experience. But he would have been aware. This is being shown at the press club. This is clearly being, you know, dis positioned as a political statement. In, so they were, they were aware of film as propaganda in this way. It's that it's propagandizing in a way that we can't defend against, in a way, I think, is the best way of explaining it. It's telling us these ideas, but in a way that our bodies respond to, and our mind doesn't have time to sit back, reflect, and form its own responses. And, and, and maybe part of that also, you know, there's, there's the famous, the train mm -hmm. film, one of the first, and people have a physical response because they haven't mm -hmm. uh, dealt with as much. It, it was interesting in the early case that you cited that they recognized the educational mm -hmm. aspect of it. They, they certainly recognized the intent mm -hmm. that was coming at it, but yeah, same thing. Um, we got another question right here. So. Yeah, you're, no, you're good. Okay. Yeah. So Jennifer, uh -huh. as you went into this, um, we live in a system of um, you know, constitutional founded country. The British mm -hmm. don't have a constitution. We have a common law system. Mm -hmm. So in common law, we look at precedents and we look mm -hmm. at intent of the law. Mm -hmm. So as you began this look, did you go actually behind the First Amendment, look at all the, the partial writings, which I'm not a scholar, but I know they're fairly limited. Yeah. Okay. But there is, some, there is some literature at the time mm -hmm. that informed the people who wrote mm -hmm. it. Did you look at that, and did you make a judgment about intent? And if you did, what's your reasoning mm -hmm. that you concluded about the intent of it versus what the questions you raise here? And excuse me, uh, are you talking about the First Amendment itself or about the mutual decisions, these specific decisions? Um, the linkage I'm making is that there is an intent behind the First Amendment. Okay. And therefore, that intent informs us. Mm -hmm. So they, they might say, we've written the words that say it's human speech, mm -hmm. and we assume this context. Mm -hmm. But there's other philosophy, there's other writings behind it that you mm -hmm. could read, and you could say, well, the intent means that whatever the future expression is, that's fine. We intend there to be a dialogue and discourse, mm -hmm. and we don't care about the medium. Mm -hmm. No. Well, one, I'm not talking, I'm not spending a lot of time debating the meaning, uh, the original intent. Um, I kind of, that's inaccessible. From my perspective, my theoretical perspective um, and disciplinary perspective, that, that's lost. We'll never know that. This was written by committee. Um, they disagreed about what they had to say, <laughs> what they meant in a sense. So the, the First Amendment, I don't think, personally, I don't think looking for an intent behind that is particularly, um, actually, I don't think it's possible as kind of a, you know, the type of scholar that I am. I wouldn't look to that. More broadly in thinking of in my um, method of approach, I'm not focusing on what these justices think and what, their, um, what the intents of these different justices are either. I'm interested in the arguments that they're making, which is always, right, this is an act of rhetoric. It's always an attempt to persuade people. So they're using the arguments that they think are most um, accurate 
or the most compelling in a historical moment. So that the things that they say give us clues not so much about what, what's in their minds, but about the intellectual context of the day. So this is the approach I'm taking to actually all the different uh, legal language that I'm looking at. So you're distinguishing between the legal language they use mm -hmm. and saying it's the context of their time rather than the language they use as if they interpreted in original intent from 1791. That's the distinction you're making, is that right? I'm, not, I'm looking at their language in the context of their time, yeah. not in the context of what they might be reading of 1791. Yeah, not so much in that. I understand that they're always working with this. Like any kind of legal decision and legal change isn't only a product of culture, it's also a product of precedent and the, the legal tradition. Um, I'm focusing on the, uh, the cultural context and um, actually in a slightly different set of cultural context than we normally look at in looking at technology and communication. Okay. Oh, that's right. You had we're going to go backwards with my question because I'm going back to the birth of the nation, okay. right? And um, I was able to see birth of the nation with live music, mm -hmm. with the like the pianist right mm -hmm. there. And that, you know, it's like you, you're talking about beforehand, like the crowd mm -hmm. and mob and the kind of idea of that experience of a crowd. Mm -hmm. And when you... When I saw, I mean, it's, you know, you see this movie and the, mu the music is live mm -hmm. and that, that experience you, that you have as a crowd is different, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And what that means in terms of how that speech influences people. And that's, I know, is that a question? I think it's an observation. <laughs> yeah. And, and you're hitting on a really interesting point that I kind of gloss over here. Um, but... In the, like, up through probably, you know, 1910, 1912, 1912 to 1915, I guess a better way to put it, is the beginning of this kind of inflection point where um, control over the site of exhibition is shifting. So before 1912, um, there is a huge amount of exhibitor control over these films. They're presenting their own music. They have, pe they have people creating music. Um, and sometimes they'll have lecturers, sometimes they have performers, sometimes these short films are interspliced with vaudeville, right? Um, and um, so these were crowded, raucous affairs, and actually sometimes the, the exhibitors or the people in the, that own the movie theater would splice together films, they'd speed them up, do various different things. And around 1912, the studios start distributing sheet music and saying, here, this is the music that goes with this film. So they're trying to control a little bit more that experience you're talking about and um, you know, control the, the sets of meanings that are accrued to the film through music as well as through the visuals. So, but yeah, I think these sites of exhibition and are very important. I think that's part of what the justices are responding to. They have an idea about what these places are and the type of experience and that it's raucous and body and this is not speech. Um, at the beginning, uh, I mean, we show the, the Gutenberg press as the technology of the time uh, in 1791, and then really around that time there was a, another new technology, the broadsheet, um, which was, you know, the new fast way to get information out. And with each one of these technologies, there was always a kind of a panic 
of, oh, it's being used in an incorrect way. And I would say mm -hmm. that uh, many of the founders of Long Now were proponents of the new technology that we now use is the internet. And we all thought that fundamentally that the more we connected people, the better things would be. And I think we're finally crossing a new threshold. Yeah. <clears throat> we're realizing that actually connecting people with yeah. totally no filters and there's no newsrooms doing fact checking and any of that, we have crossed and, and, and strangely a new set of people are saying, wow, actually this is, we're crossing into the um, people are yelling fire in the theater line of the mm -hmm. First Amendment, mm -hmm. right? And so that argument seems to have been, the fire in the theater argument always gets made mm -hmm. um, with every new technology. And I'm just curious as to what you think of uh, where we're at with this one um, and where we may be at with the next ones, whether it's generative uh, speech from, uh, from computers. And, and if we just need to spend our time getting used to technologies and, and, or, and kind of call it truce during those times mm -hmm. uh, as we get used to them, or if we actually need to change the law and say you can't yell fire in the theater? Yeah. Um, so that's a really good and really complicated question. And in general, I'd like to call on the room to respond. But I'd also, um, I want to say I think that there's a couple things in there, which is one of the problems that, you know, I think a lot of us are having with, you know, the or one of the problems that we're having or the disillusionments we're having with the internet right now, right, is it didn't turn out as this kind of enlightenment project. It's turned out to be um, a hotbed of rumor and uh, falsities and things like that, which has to do with the specific ideas and content. Um, uh, where I would be interested in thinking about the fire in a theater question is really if we're thinking about when is the mode of communication on the internet something that might cross over into action or conduct, and um, is that action or conduct, when might that action or conduct um, be considered expression, when is it considered um, something that is just brute action or whatever, and um, how we might think through that. So if we can think through any examples where um, some of this does seem to be more material or to be somewhat different in its mode of communication or in its form, uh, that would be really wonderful and useful. And does anybody else have anything to say? Because this is, I think, you, a compelling we've got, one. We've yeah. got one right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, thank hey, you. we have a question. Uh -huh. um, our question is, in the age of live streaming of events and Facebook live streaming, mm -hmm. live streaming on multiple different platforms, uh, do you consider or would you consider that to be protected speech? If so, should it be regulated? And if so, who should be in charge of regulating that speech? Should it be the platforms themselves? Should they be government regulation? Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like a doctrine question. <laughs> so I think there's some lawyers in the room that could maybe field the actual doctrine a little bit better. Is this, are you the lawyer in the room that can field the doctrine? <laughs> Do you, can you answer? Would you answer a little bit about? I actually wanted to hear your view on it because, you know, are we going to recognize the difference between uh, an individual live streaming a murder, say in Cleveland, mm, okay. um, yeah. versus uh, a, a protester live streaming police brutality at Standing Rock. Yeah. I mean, I think there are, I think the public would recognize that there's mm -hmm. a difference in those two medium, mm -hmm. like those, the content of, of mm -hmm. those two, but then who would be, who should be responsible for determining what the public has access to and how? 
and you know, are we willing to, are we gonna recognize that as speech? And then, um, I mean, there are so many questions that kind of bridge So if we that. recognize that as speech, you know, if we're gonna make some kind of like blanket statement, like all live streaming is speech because it's just um, merely, you know, the transmission over a distance of something that I'm saying or doing, which I don't know that we would do. That's a question for the lawyers. Um, then, um, we're saying there can be no rules, no uh, rules from the government. Facebook can implement its own regulations of that, right? If, we, if we're saying this is all pure free speech, Facebook can have any kind of rule it wants about that because that's not covered by uh, the First Amendment. But uh, California can't create a law saying, um, you know, any kind of live streaming should be subject to a five second delay or whatever kind of thing. Um, is that kind of where you're going? Well, I, I'm putting it out there for yeah. people to think yeah. about okay. because yeah. I, I think that there's definitely a public push to want to regulate yeah. people's access um, because we don't, like the, the, the platforms themselves don't want to be seen as propagating violence. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's, very, it's a very difficult yeah. and nuanced question because who should be doing the judging about what you know, what the public sees and what the public doesn't yeah. see. And when do platforms want to be speakers and when do they want to be mere platforms or conduits, which is a really interesting question. Like Facebook doesn't want to be a speaker, right? Or Facebook doesn't yeah. want to take on that kind of role. I, I Google think there's does. Another, there's another dimension that actually between both these comments that, that brings together maybe, maybe part of the uh, other discussion. Um, we're going from a broadcast era into a narrow cast era. Mm -hmm. So the crowded theater may not be very crowded. Mm -hmm. It may be a very insightful kind of mm -hmm. speech. Mm -hmm. um, we yeah. actually, there's a, there's a case right now about uh, a gentleman who's currently president who incited <laughs> people in his crowd without, uh, with yeah. just a public broadcast system. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, you know, it, it's interesting because you talk about uh -huh. the mass. Yeah. And, and we're now into the yeah. narrows yeah, in, a, in an interesting, yeah. interesting way. Yeah. Um, the, the, I mean, following up on Xander's question, there's another thing which I think has happened with the, the internet, maybe before that, but very much with the internet, and that is the anonymity of speech. It's one thing to say, you don't have freedom to say that. If I don't know who you are, I can't stop that. Mm -hmm. And so one of the real sort of complex problems of the internet is that as anonymity, real or assumed, seems to free people to do things and say things they wouldn't otherwise say. Mm -hmm. And there's actually almost no enforceability. Yeah. And so you could say, well, that's not allowed, but how do you stop it? Unless mm -hmm. you try to control the broadcast media, mm -hmm. who very aggressively try to say, hey, we're just the broadcast media. We're just the pipe. Yeah. Um, so there's an accountability yeah. problem. Yeah. And, and right, broadcasting isn't the media where that's happening. Um, so much. Yeah. Uh, sort of going off of these questions, um, what do you think are the implications of uh, these types of these forms of communication being protected under free speech? So let's say computer code and algorithmically produced recommendations are protected. Uh, what are the major concerns? Is it that like, let's say with the Facebook news feed, is that the news stories are they if they're protected under free speech? Is that necessarily a bad thing? How do we protect against that? Is it just really mm -hmm. just a case of like what is an exception versus not? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so what are the implications and what, what are the major concerns about this 
type of speech being protected. So, I mean, this is really interesting to me. I'm interested in a kind of definitional way, like what do we think, you know, speech is? How are we defining it at this moment? So I have kind of this very, um, a very, in a sense, abstract kind of definitional interest in it. I just find these questions kind of interesting. But at the same time, I'm very interested in, I, I am very interested in this question of what, what the interests are and what, the, what is gained and what is lost. And so when we think about things like the questions about algorithms, some people who would like to argue that the output of algorithms are speech want to do so so that their um, platform cannot be regulated. That would be Google, right? They want to say that their search results are, are speech so that we can't make any rules saying, well, um, you can't put... Um, ad results, or you have to filter them, you know, change your filter for some kind of social reason. And so, at times, we, you know, thinking about what, who wants these things and why is one of the things I'm trying to grapple with in thinking through these kind of definitional questions. It's not only what are the technologies and how are we understanding them, how are technology and culture mixing in these moments, but what are the actual kind of implications in the world and, um, you know, that's one I know. There are many others I'm sure I don't know. So if uh, somebody out there has any answers to any of these questions that are being posed, <laughs> uh, raise your hand. I want to, uh, Jennifer, a quick aside. Um, put this uh, current talk in mm -hmm. the context of kind of the larger thing you're working mm -hmm. on, because you're, you're in, in the midst of the beginnings of working on a, a book on this, right? So mm -hmm. do you, you want to draw that boundary of sure. kind of the larger thing you're working on. So yeah, I'm, I'm in a, the middle of a book uh, talking about the history of the ways that um, new technologies have shaped the way how justices are thinking about what counts as speech. And there are a couple of primary trajectories that I'm tracing, and one of them is um, this kind of ideas versus action trajectory and the way that um, the proliferation of, on one hand, film and uh, visual, other visual media, including billboards, advertisements, and magazines, and newspapers, and photojournalism, are changing the way, and things like psychology, like I presented here, are changing the way that justices and other people are thinking about communication and how this shifts to enable us to have um, things like, con you know, some kinds of actions included within free speech law. And one thing I should have mentioned, and one of the reasons this is important, and one of the things I should have mentioned about the Barnett case, is this case, I think, is an important precedent or one of the um, key shifts that had to happen before film could be included within free speech, which happened nine years later. But this is also a really important precedent that gets us things like, or say, lays the important groundwork for saying um, flag burning is speech and things like that, draft card burning, things like this. This is a beginning of symbolic expression. So that's one trajectory. And the other trajectory is looking at um, how radio was an early form of distributed speech, in a sense. It was really hard with early radio to think about who was a speaker. It raised questions about who was a speaker and could you have speech when there was not one person, a clearly easily identifiable person responsible for the output. Um, and also, radio was always commercial as well as opinion. And that this laid the groundwork, some important groundwork, for um, later uh, discussions of commercial speech. So in each case, I'm kind of taking something recent, like flag burning, commercial speech, and, and in fact, um, uh, 
Citizens United, and tracing it back and giving an unusual genealogy of it and tying it to uh, early 20th century technologies. Do we have another, or mm -hmm. we just, uh, anyone have, I think? I, I sort of want to go back to first principles, which is okay. the first principle of the First Amendment is that Congress shall make no law. So it, it, um, it sort of says Congress shall not censor this stuff, mm -hmm. but there's censorship going on all the time. I yes. mean, the editors of newspapers decide yes. what's going on, the mm -hmm. editors of journals, mm -hmm. and, and so there's a, it, um, if we sort of think uh, about the, the break between what we don't want the government to do, Congress, mm -hmm. the states, mm -hmm. as opposed to what we think might be appropriate mm -hmm. for um, Google or Facebook or uh, live streaming mm -hmm. uh, um, sites, it, uh, it sort of goes back to a little bit to um, the responsibility of educated citizens to sort of mm -hmm. figure out where they think the if um, everything should be speech, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, of course that's speech, mm -hmm. and of course that's speech. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the censorship and regulation of speech is not only limited to Congress. Like, it's not yeah. so much a question as a comment. Mm -hmm. This is true. And, yeah. and there's one thing I would add here, right, is this is a primary way we interpret the First Amendment, is this kind of negative uh, liberty. But in the 1930s, there was actually a very strong set of conversations saying that actually what this meant was that the Congress had to actually kind of create this level playing field and had to create opportunities for people to engage in speech. And you find traces of that in all kinds of radio regulation and in some key First Amendment uh, cases in the early 1940s, like AP versus US, the judges say, well, it would be pretty crazy to say that, um, you know, that the idea that we couldn't um, restrict speech meant that we couldn't uh, block a merger or block, actually it, was, it wasn't a merger, but it was anti-competitive practices. So you have some interesting interpretations of that. But yes, yeah, you're right, yeah. All right, well, that's gonna uh, end our conversation mm -hmm. on the mic, but uh, Jennifer's gonna stick around. You're not allowed to leave until we answer all these questions. Yes, <laughs> please, it will help me um, with my book, yes. No. <laughs> Yeah, please, please uh, talk you have thoughts, with each other. Come up here, yeah. Jennifer's. Uh, I, yeah. I expect to see a scrum up here. That's what yeah. we like, is, a, is an active discussion afterwards. Yeah. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much. I have a thank Long you. Now Challenge coin as a little token of our thank esteem you. for your speaking. All right, a big round of applause. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.